Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com coming to you after a break of several weeks, paternity leave as I've been calling it, following the safe arrival of our new baby, um, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme the lawyer and university lecturer, Adyinka, I knew I wouldn't get this right. Go on, tell me again how it's pronounced. Mackinday. Adyinka Mackinday, for a discussion on his soon-to-be-published article with the intriguing title, Intelligence Accountability, Can the British State Convict Itself? Adyinka trained for the law as a barrister. He lectures in criminal law and public law at a university in London here in the UK and has an academic interest, uh, research interest in intelligence and security matters. He writes on international relations, politics, military history and has been a programme consultant and expert commentator for the BBC World Service Radio, China Radio International and The Voice of Russia. Adyinka, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme. My pleasure, Julian. Now, thank you ever so much for sending me your article and suggesting it as a possible subject for discussion. I have to say that I have found it very interesting indeed, and I think it deals with matters that are very important and which should concern us all. And just to put people in the picture, you ask questions about the morality and the legality of various actions by the state specifically the British state, and by the state, I suppose we might think very broadly of government, political figures, civil servants, uh, servants of the state in general, but also the deep state, which often people talk about these days. So we might think there of the intelligence services, very much central to your piece. And you ask those questions of accountability, uh, morality, legality, you ask those questions with reference to three fascinating cases, which I think will interest listeners very much. First of all, the Iraq invasion of 2003. Uh, Secondly, the CIA's so-called extraordinary rendition program in which the British state has been implicated. And thirdly, the murderous actions of some elements of the British armed forces in Northern Ireland during the early years of the so-called troubles over there. And uh, you even look at the prospects for prosecution with respect to those crimes. Again, asking that question, can the British state convict itself? Is that even possible? So it's a tremendous amount for us to discuss this evening. Um, But I want to start by putting all that on hold, just to disappoint everybody, just for a moment, because my first question to you, Adyinka, is um, how did you get into the business of asking questions quite like this? Well, I think I'd have to say it's um, something which I developed um, right from early childhood, that the library my father built and my mother had also they were filled with books on, um, you know, politics and history, mm. history to do, for instance, with the Nigerian Civil War, the Second World War. And I was always interested in current affairs and that sort of thing. And um, it's an interest that uh, has never left me and has always uh, made me very conscious about uh, the study of history and its importance in the way in which uh, it uh, affects the uh, present and also mm. future. It sounds somewhat cliched, but um, there's just an inexorable logic about that manner of viewing the world and um, any aspect of life or discipline that I, I, I involve myself in, I'm invariably attracted to its historical origins. Mm-hmm. So why specifically the legal aspect to these historical questions? 
I'm trained in the law, and I suppose mm. an attraction to the law was also predicated on this idea of law being something which is based on history. There's always a historical connotation to the law and how it develops to the present. So, for instance, um, one of the areas in which I do lecture in as a specialist is public law, constitutional law. And that really is an admixture of history, philosophy, the law, current events, all in one go at the same time. So that's past, present, future. Uh, I always have found um, very uh, stimulating and interesting. And the subjects, the examples, really, that you use in your essay, they're justice questions, but they're quite controversial things in some ways. I mean, do you explore those kinds of controversial things with your students at the university as well? Not necessarily. Hmm. It's more or less, uh, I wouldn't say straight-laced, but um, when dealing with, for instance, something like uh, constitutional law, well, sure. I mean, you do have those controversial aspects. If you have to teach uh, European law and uh, its effect on parliamentary sovereignty and human rights law, there are occasionally these controversial things. Although my interest is in secret warfare and also intelligence and security matters. So that may occasionally crop up, but not all the time. Yes, I noticed that you had on your bibliography Daniel Aganza's book on NATO secret armies. And I thought, ah, there we are. I can see the interest <laughs> in that kind of thing immediately there. And of course, you do bring that question into the essay as well. Yes. So even though we're not dealing with um, Gladio and NATO secret armies, but uh, Vincenzo Vinciguerra, that um, fascist leader of um, a paramilitary group who was um, used by... Uh, NATO to set off bombs and create terrorist acts, he posed the question very interestingly and relevantly, you know, because he said at the end of the day, there are certain actions that the state involves itself in, which are almost outrageous. And when they are discovered, the idea that the state could convict itself is somewhat improbable in the sense that, uh, you, know, the, you know, in a criminal sense, you know, which goes further than just civil liability, because uh, the state will be undermining its legitimacy. And I think that runs at the heart of the issues that we're going to discuss. Yes, yeah, so we're going to delve into the substance of your essay now. And you begin that whole process of looking at those kinds of questions way back in the time of the Elizabethan era. And of course, I mean the first Elizabeth. And you bring up <laughs> Sir Francis Walsingham as perhaps the first example in a, in a modern sense of someone who developed an intelligence organization. Could you tell us something about that history? Yes, um, Francis Walsingham, um, he was the spy master of uh, Queen Elizabeth. In many ways, he's the template of these super figures who we may know from um, real history, who have been the heads of uh, formidable intelligence organizations uh, from uh, Smirsch, the Cheka in the old Soviet Union, to Mossad in Israel to also fictional characters, you know, created um, by um, the George Smiley character. Well, Carey, the, yes. John sure. Carey, that's right. Mm. And um, what is fascinating about it is that 
there is that capacity for underhandedness, but there is that capacity for actually promoting the development of a country, making it powerful. Without the likes of Walsingham, England would not have risen to the heights that it did and is still somewhat uh, living off uh, to the present day. But in doing that, it did involve a lot of underhand activities, things we today would understand, for instance, by the phrase false flag and the use of deception and bribery to uh, cajole, get uh, people um, to work for you. Um, That is actually the origins of the British Secret Service. Yes, indeed. What a history to have. I mean, you say in the piece that he was very much amoral in the way he approached things. You describe him as Machiavellian. He had this kind of ends justify the means approach to everything. And I believe his title was Secretary of State. And he had spies and code breakers and people who were gifted in unsealing letters and this sort of thing. That's right. He learned quite a lot of his trade uh, from the time he spent in exile from Britain when it was ruled by a Catholic monarch. A lot of the tricks of the trade he got from the Venetian merchants who had some particular aptitude in terms of secrecy and codes. And when Queen Elizabeth I rose to power, uh, he was well-placed to um, utilize uh, this. And he he did so in a very sophisticated manner. He discovered that uh, an ambassador to France was a spy, it wasn't a reaction, an emotional reaction of off with his head, let's kill him. No, what Walsingham does is he turns him into a double agent, makes him work for the British state and catch the traitors in the midst of of the realm. And it's very much alive today. We have, of course, uh, MI5 and MI6 and GCHQ, and we've become so familiar with those names. It's as if they've always been there and always known about. But as you say in the piece, it's relatively recently that MI5 and MI6 were actually acknowledged by the law. Was it the 1980s and the 1990s? Is that right? That's right. It's an extraordinary fact. I wouldn't say they weren't known. I think they were fairly well known in the public domain. Mm-hmm. The problem was the recognition. There was absolutely no recognition that they existed. And that's quite extraordinary for a country uh, such as Britain, which prides itself, um, you know, its standards of uh, democracy and uh, openness and, and the like. These uh, organizations were of the sort who could uh, organize the assassinations of foreign leaders or to subvert foreign governments they could record key people. MI5 was the domestic and is still the domestic uh, body. Mm. So they can keep records on people who they feel may be enemies of the state. MI6, on the other hand, the foreign aspect of it, they're known as the secret intelligence service as well. They are charged with collecting intelligence in foreign affairs. And um, it is the case that their specific origins began at the beginning of the 20th century. And they served the British state uh, throughout, you know, the First World War, the interwar years, Second World War, the Cold War. And it actually happened that it was the membership of the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, which uh, set the basis for them to be put on a statutory footing um, because it was just its contrary to uh, human rights, the the right to privacy, for a state body to be capable of um, 
keeping records of its citizens uh, without the citizens knowing about the existence of this uh, body. Right, so they were actually challenged in the late 1980s under the European Convention on Human Rights. I mean, before that, they were just doing all this stuff with no legal basis for it at all. So they were just free agents. Absolutely. And, and, and free agents in the sense that although they technically did come under the control of the executive branch of government, you know, the prime minister and the foreign office and the home office, mm. there were situations where clearly they acted independently. I think um, there was an incident when uh, Secretary General Khrushchev visited Britain in the 1950s and it led to a tragedy, a scandal, where a British Royal Navy officer, uh, he'd been retired but he worked for the Secret Service, was um, discovered to have been missing and um, the story was that um, his head was decapitated and he was murdered by the Russians. He was there as a frogman spying on the Russian, the visiting Russian delegation. And it was quite clear that Harold Macmillan's government had no idea that an operation such as that had been uh, put into effect. So we should also bear in mind uh, that, yes, there might be political pressures on the security services, but also, on the other hand, um, we should ponder on those circumstances where they may actually be working uh, independently by themselves. But even though they are now under law, as it were, that law still does differentiate between people like you and me, normal citizens, and those in the deep state, let's say, in that the law permits members of the intelligence services under certain conditions to commit acts that would ordinarily be counted as crimes, such as bribery, breaking and entering, surveillance. But there's a fair degree of immunity for even serious crimes, you say, in certain instances. Could you tell us something about that? Yes, that's right. Um, that's under the Intelligence Services Act of 1994, um, Section 7. And it's particularly relevant to um, the issue of um, torture and extraordinary rendition. The MI6 agents technically, officially, are not given a license to kill. They should not be involved in uh, very serious criminal matters. But potentially, they may have immunity if the foreign secretary, for instance, um, does confer immunity on them for a specific operation where it does involve these serious offences such as murder, uh, kidnapping and, and, and torture. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, now is it section 7 of that act? So I went and looked it up and so I hope this is the relevant quote. It was quite striking. Uh, let me quote here. If apart from this section, so that's this, this section of writing here, if apart from this section... A person would be liable in the United Kingdom for any act done outside the British Islands. He shall not be so liable if the act is one which is authorised to be done by virtue of an authorisation given by the Secretary of State under this section. Now that is what you've just said, presumably. That's right. Hmm. I suppose the implication of that is that if it's not authorised, then that person will be guilty of murder or being an accessory to murder, kidnapping and torture. However, if he is given such authorization, then the focus then would be on the Secretary of State who does give such uh, authorization. And whether that person has an immunity is something that is uh, open. I mean, arguably speaking, they shouldn't have immunity because um, there isn't a specific prescription that they should be immune. 
Yeah. I mean, looking at uh, this is section 7.3.2, it seems to all depend upon whether the Foreign Secretary thinks it's reasonable or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> insofar as any acts may be done in reliance on the authorization, their nature and likely consequences will be reasonable, having regard to the purposes for which they're carried out. So, so long as they're, you know, they're fit for purpose and the relevant minister thinks, yeah, that's reasonable, it could be pretty much anything, according to that. Yeah, that phrase, reasonable, I think um, lots of the law, for instance, to do with delegated legislation, where there is that aspect of discretion is predicated on this idea of uh, is it reasonable, is it uh, just, is it uh, fit under the circumstances, very, very wide. Mm. But the key thing is, when will it be put to the test? I mean, the decision was made in uh, this summer, not to prosecute uh, a member of MI6 or uh, Jack Straw, a foreign secretary who was involved, who was alleged to have been involved in the rendition of uh, alleged terror suspects. And I think that's the key thing. This thing is there in the law. The idea of the state actually prosecuting it and put into the test reasonableness doesn't seem to occur once they've been found out. Yeah, I suppose you could, if you were in that position, say that it's never reasonable to prosecute the state. <laughs> well, again, I mean, it, we started with Francis Walsingham, but again, I think uh, those uh, medieval thinkers like uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, they stated it in a way in which is still relevant to today, because Machiavelli, everybody is familiar with the terminology, and perhaps even if they've not read The Prince, they are um, familiar with the idea of the end justifies the means. And if the stability and the prosperity of um, the domain, the prince's domain, is going to be promoted by murder, by cruelty, by deception, by violence, then that's all, all well and good if to help. So you transfer that into the modern context of, you know, fighting a so-called war on terror or maintaining good relations with your ally, the United States of America, or involving yourself in these nefarious deeds because British companies will benefit. You know, do you see it, it still has a particular relevance um, to this day? Yes. Yes, you say sort of transferred into the modern context because this is your interest in history very much. You bring up the the fact that a lot of this really is a leftover from the divine right of kings. And you bring up a couple of examples, one of which is crown privilege. And I'm not familiar with this. Um, could you explain what that is? Well, the divine right of kings, just to start off with that, I mean, mm. the whole idea of bringing that up is to be conscious of where the state came from. The king... The king was the uh, repository of all power in the country. And of course, as time has developed, that power has been separated in the usual thinking into three branches, you know, the lawmaking body, the body that carries it out, and the judicial body that interprets the law and renders decisions. And the key thing is that the king in the medieval world largely discharged these functions. And under the basis of the divine right of kings, it meant that he ruled at God's will. He was a lieutenant of God. He presumed and, to, yes. <laughs> yes. And so that therefore, um, he could really do no wrong. Uh, you could not challenge him. No. So in effect, the default position is the state is immune. Yes. So that is always a useful starting point. And as we go into the modern era, and of course, the, the development of 
Anglo-Normal constitutionalism and the developments in democracy and the, the right to review cases, the writ of habeas corpus, you know, that the state could not um, hold anybody without charge. You know, they had to justify that. Um, Crown immunity was this development that, okay, the monarch has been pushed into the background with modern developments and these institutions of uh, parliament, uh, an executive branch with the prime minister and the ministers and the independent judiciary have grown in its stead. And those extraordinary powers of the monarch um, are today exercised by the executive branch of government. I mean, some of the powers uh, are obviously exercised by parliament to make law and to maintain an army. Um, but we will talk about the royal prerogative and, and, and that's um, um, aspect of executive power. What it is, is that crown immunity is this sort of leftover of absolute power of the king so that the king had immunities um, and certain privileges uh, under the law, some of which still exist to this day. Mm-hmm. I mean, would an example of crown privilege be an appeal to things like um, in the national interest and for the sake of national security, these kinds of things? Absolutely. And I think um, in Britain and the United States, that argument by the executive branch of government that this is in the national interest, this is there's um, usually a reaction by the judiciary, although they're independent, they do tend to defer in many situations when the issue of national security is brought up. It also involves, I mean, the mechanism where the government can prevent certain evidence from coming to court on the basis of crown um, immunity. It's now been changed. What was called a crown privilege, it's now known as the public interest immunity. So you may be familiar with the Matrix Churchill affair. It has something to do with Iraq. If you remember, after the first Gulf War, there was an embargo against selling arms to Iraq. Basically, the law of the land was that selling any materials, industrial materials, so they don't have to be actual weapons, munitions, just certain um, industrial materials could be converted to military use, was absolutely forbidden by the law. However, what happened was certain government ministers gave the okay for some British companies to trade with Saddam's government and ended up selling him these things, which potentially could have been used to make weapons. I think at the time, the West was exercised, and certainly the state of Israel was exercised with Saddam Hussein and his capability of uh, developing what they called a super a super gun. Mm-hmm. And um, these men were, uh, these company directors, were uh, found out by the authorities. They were charged and uh, tried in court for breaking the criminal law of the land. Now, remember, they were encouraged by government ministers to do this. Mm. But by issuing this public interest immunity, claiming this uh, public interest immunity certificate, it meant that this could not be brought up as evidence in court. These directors were facing lengthy jail terms until there was uh, some uh, reflection and there was an admission. Alan Clark, a 
controversial figure from the Conservative Party was involved in this. That's when he said um, he was being economical with the minutiae of, of things. And so once this was revealed in open court, the men were, you know, the trial was immediately abandoned and they were freed. So that shows you the power of the state and how, you know, it's inherited these extraordinary powers, which, you know, can be traced all the way back to the powers of uh, the medieval kings. Mm. Well, going back to the notion of intelligence, would I be right in saying that you consider the very structure of the modern state with this covert arm, this intelligence arm and the overt part of government, we might call it, um, those two aspects as being inherently unethical, that it allows these morally questionable and illegal activities to take place in secret, while the you know, the more public aspects of state can play the part of being respectable and law-abiding and all that. Do you think that the whole thing is, as I say, inherently unethical? Um, I think to some extent, yes. But um, on the other hand, um, I, you know, I always leave that question open. I mean, it may be a question of transparency, but then again, transparency is a little antithetical to the whole idea of having a security service. A security service can help protect you from um, external enemies, that's for sure. Um, I'm not uh, an an expert, for instance, in the anarchist uh, view of what the state is, but I think that's a useful critique. You know, the anarchist believes that the state is inherently evil. Mm. That is actually a a fairly plausible route to take when looking at it. But there's no question about it that having a functioning democracy and then having an institution which is dedicated to covert actions of espionage and things that lead to warfare, there is a tension there. Sometimes it reaches uh, an intolerable level. Um, I'm not claiming to be the person to resolve it. No, no, sure. <laughs> it's just that when you do look at it at face value, it does seem to be rather contradictory, but I know that then you have to think further about it and then it becomes more complex. But certainly, um, my immediate reaction to it is, well, this shouldn't be. <laughs> um, however, let's move on to perhaps the main example that you discuss. You have three main ones. Now, this is the example of the UK government's decision under Tony Blair to invade Iraq. This is 2003. Because uh, you say that that decision was, at least ostensibly, founded upon intelligence. I think you say this was the, was it the first war by a modern UK government to go to war based on intelligence? Purely on intelligence, relying on intelligence. So it's, uh, it's unique in, in, in that factor. Um, it's not unique in other factors, because um, I think there are parallels between this invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the... 1956 invasion of uh, Suez by Britain, France, and uh, the State of Israel. But yes, uh, intelligence was specifically used, and it all related to this matter of whether Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Okay, well, so now I've got to ask you this. Sorry about this, but I have to ask you. We've now had the Chilcot Report. Yes. Took years, seven years, cost millions, millions of words. It's far more damning of Tony Blair, his government, and the intelligence community than many people expected, me included. But it didn't find specifically criminal behavior. So the question really is, shouldn't we just be satisfied with that and move on? 
Not at all. I mean, I don't think it specifically ruled out any crime being involved. I think what the Chilcot inquiry said is um, we will provide uh, all the evidence and provide um, a measure of um, highlighting those areas which gave grave cause for concern and that therefore it was up to the relevant authorities, it was up to the public to decide whether criminal actions had been committed. And based on what the Chilcot report supplied, I think the case for saying that um, that war in Iraq equated to a war of aggression, there's quite a lot of meat to that uh, proposition. And so it certainly did a favour. It wasn't the whitewash that the Butler report was. I think it does highlight those areas where you could say that Tony Blair was certainly contriving to mount a war for which there was no basis, there was no justification. Sure, you know? sure. So you're saying that it does, in fact, invite people to look into the question of criminality. You say it doesn't rule that out. Absolutely, absolutely. So somebody like uh, Tom Harris, writing in The Telegraph, this is back in July, who has this headline, only conspiracy theorists want to impeach Tony Blair. Grown-ups would try and learn lessons. And the whole piece is about, you know, oh, we should just accept what the uh, report says and just leave it at that. You say that that really is a misunderstanding of the report itself. Uh, a, a total misunderstanding. And not only that, I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously a deliberate method of trying to fob off what is a very, very serious um, issue. Uh, of, of of morality and uh, uh, that has occurred in the, in regard to the British state in, in in recent memory, it really is that serious that Tony Blair may have colluded, may have connived, may have conspired to wage an unjustified war. That is a war crime, effectively. You know, waging a war of aggression, and uh, you can't get more criminal than that because if indeed. He colluded with George Bush to invade Iraq with absolutely no evidence uh, that uh, these weapons of mass destruction uh, were capable of um, being launched against any interest of the United States or Britain. Then that is effectively a war crime, a similar crime for which members of the German armed forces and those survivors of the political uh, wing of the Nazi party were hung by the neck, uh, were hanged by the neck at uh, Nuremberg. Indeed. So I think we need to explore, this is extremely complicated, of course, to go into this, but I do think we need to explore this a little bit. You've, You've given some kind of pointers, but I think we need more indication. So could you give us perhaps some of the key indications in your view that Tony Blair and perhaps others might be guilty of this criminal behavior in taking the UK to war in Iraq? So I'm asking you for some of the key things that you think need to be discussed. Um, For instance, um, very brief excerpts from communications uh, by Tony Blair. I mean, it appears that George Bush was set on a course of war. Now, there are many reasons uh, why that was the case. But the evidence from the point of view of uh, Tony Blair's collusion is that um, there was a telephone conversation he had with George Bush in December of 2001. And uh, Blair immediately understood that what Bush was about was to invade Iraq, whatever the consequences 
he had to find a way to do that. And in uh, this uh, probably a spirit of, uh, you know, the conspiratorial mood, Blair sort of blurted out that, well, an extremely clever plan will be required to do this. Later on, the following year, he mentioned um, in a written communication to George Bush that I will be with you, whatever. And I think the the Chilcot inquiry actually highlighted that as being the precise moment when Britain set itself on a path for war, when in fact all the possibilities had not been exhausted to resolve the matter with Iraq. Okay, well, let me uh, bring a challenge to that. Um, I don't accept this challenge, but I will bring it to you (laughs) nevertheless. So this is the 28th of March 2002 memo that Blair wrote to Bush. So it says, note on Iraq. And as you say, it starts with, I will be with you, whatever. But then it continues, but this is the moment to assess bluntly the difficulties. So a number of people have said, yes, but it continues with the word but. So it qualifies that previous sentence. Do you accept that as a qualification, a nuancing of what he's saying there? Oh, not at all. It's all about being Teflon Tony. It's all about, yes, let's go ahead with this, but really, we really have to cover our backs. I think there's so many areas in which people have tried to put in the case that, oh, this is ambiguous. This is a qualification. But um, I certainly I certainly don't um, accept that in the slightest. In fact, there was a bit of information which was um, released well before the Chilcot report. This was in the mid-2000s where Richard Dearlove, who was then the head of MI6, was reporting back to Tony Blair. So this is around the period. I can't remember. I think the Chilcot report probably has the, would have the precise date. But um, what Dearlove was telling Tony Blair was that so far, evidence of weapons of mass destruction is thin. But what's happening with the Americans is that they are working their intelligence and, and facts around the policy. <laughs> yes, and, that's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's been in the public domain for a long, long time, yes. It has indeed, and I think everybody should read that sentence because it comes up again in the very famous Downing Street memo. I'll put the link to the, in the notes here. There's a website that you can go to that's devoted to this memo and other communications. And um, so let me just quote from this. So this is uh, 23rd of July 2002, and it's from the Prime Minister's Private Secretary Matthew Rycroft, and it's written to UK ambassador to the US, David Manning, and within the communication it says, um, there are some letters standing for people's names, so this is what C is, it stands for somebody. C reported on his recent talks in Washington, there was a perceptible shift in attitude. Military action was now seen as inevitable. Bush wanted to remove Saddam through military action, justified by the conjunction of terrorism and WMD. But the intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy. I mean, it just jumps out at you. You say it's a very famous sentence, but it's one that we should never forget. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And we should also not forget that, um, I mean, the main thrust for this invasion came from the American side. So it's really Tony Blair collaborating with George Bush to create the circumstances to make it presentable and palatable to the public. But we mustn't forget that um, part of the uh, agenda of uh, those uh, neoconservatives, those of the new conservative stripe who were part of the Bush administration, was to invade Iraq. 
who you know had nothing to do with uh, what is purported to have happened in uh, September 11. Saddam Hussein was the leader of a secular government and um, he had no connections at all with Al-Qaeda. But invasion of Iraq had been called upon by these uh, neoconservatives since the, uh, the time of Bill Clinton. So even that in itself is the fraud. But we have the policy documents and uh, statements that bear that out, that uh, what uh, General Wesley Clark uh, revealed um, in the mid-2000s, uh, that they were going to take out uh, seven countries in five years. Right. The extraordinary thing is that agenda is still being fulfilled <laughs> to the present. Absolutely extraordinary. And uh, it's interesting to observe that, as you say, the impetus is coming from this neocon ideology. And Robin Cook, who had been Foreign Secretary, said in one documentary that he really felt that Tony Blair, his motivation was to try to show himself, that is the UK, to be the great ally of the US. And this is really what was motivating him. And that's why Blair believed, he kind of needed to believe that these WMD were there. Even though the evidence was not coming forth, it was necessary for him to believe that in order to be on side with the programme. I think the real dishonesty of the government's position is that Tony Blair could not be frank with the British people about the real reason why he believed Britain had to be part of invasion, which was to prove to the United States president that we were his most reliable, most sound ally. Uh, that was why he committed himself to President Bush. I don't deny that Tony Blair genuinely believed that there were illegal weapons inside Iraq. But the evidence for it was always very thin. But he the, believed it. The, the reality is that he believed in the evidence because he needed to believe in the evidence. Do you think that was what was the, the psychology of Blair? I think that's part of it. I'm, I'm not a psychology expert. And Blair is a fairly complex character. Yeah. In that regard, he, he does shift and changes uh, depending on the mood. But there might be something to that. And it's all the more galling that he would put himself in that position because after all Harold Wilson was under enormous pressure to support uh, America in the war in Vietnam and he resolutely refused to do that so Tony Blair did not have to go anywhere in that direction of being a vassal to uh, the American administration I mean there is an aspect that is really unfathomable about it Britain Despite it, the so-called special relationship, which is a point of debate, America perhaps doesn't treat it in the same way that certain uh, British uh, prime ministers have, have treated that. But that precedent set by Harold Wilson puts Tony Blair in a very bad light. And I think there's something which I want to throw in simply because I find it very indicative of the attitude. I do think it's important not just to look at the stark evidence of exactly what was said with respect to decisions made for war, but to look at some of the background things as well. And I do find this particular piece of evidence very revealing. So this was... Um, from the so-called secret Blair Bush memo. So this is reported by Professor Sands in his book, The Lawless World, and then reported on Channel 4 News too. And there was a meeting apparently between Blair and Bush at the White House in the end of January 2003. So this was several weeks before the invasion. Tony Blair was unsure of the legality of the situation. There had not been this second uh, UN resolution that many were saying, most were saying, was necessary to establish 
establish the legality. And at that meeting, it was reported that Bush had suggested to Blair that because they hadn't found any WMD, and it didn't look like they were going to find any uh, WMD, that the US might consider, and this is a quote here, flying U-2 reconnaissance aircraft planes with fighter cover over Iraq, painted in UN colours, if Saddam fired on them, he would be in breach of the UN resolutions. It was the most critical meeting in the tense weeks before the Iraq war. Face-to-face talks in the White House between President Bush and Tony Blair, along with their most senior officials. Channel 4 News has seen a secret memo which details that discussion between the two leaders. The President makes it clear there'll be war on Saddam regardless of whether the UN passes a further resolution. The Prime Minister replies he is, quotes, solidly with the President. And George Bush even floats the idea of trying to lure Saddam into war by flying an American spy plane over Iraq painted in UN colours. Now, it's that attitude that I find very revealing. I mean, it doesn't prove anything with respect to decisions that were made thereafter, but I do think it's a window onto, as I say, the attitude that was behind this. What's your reaction to that? Oh, absolutely. I agree. Blair did say this will require a clever plan. That specific example you gave, um, I'm a little bit surprised about it in the sense that Saddam was under really great restrictions at the time. I mean, there was a, I was about to say effective embargo, but we know there was a lot of corruption surrounding that. But um, effective in the sense of its brutality, because um, at least half a million children died uh, with the sanctions imposed on on Iraq at the time. But also there was a no-fly zone strictly in force. So it's very doubtful that Saddam could have summoned up his aeroplanes to take the bait, so to speak. I mean, I think um, actually what they would have wanted to have done to create a, a false flag incident would have been to have invented a, or painted an Iraqi-colored uh, aircraft and then shut down this also uh, rather fake um, aircraft there. So Yes, yeah, so it doesn't necessarily need to be a very well-thought-out suggestion. Um, <laughs> it's just the fact that somebody should suggest such a thing. Uh, I find that revealing in itself. Absolutely. And I think in the bowels of uh, political activity, when it comes to this sort of real politique and um, grasps for power and the urge for conquest, um, this sort of thing is typical. And it's also typical of the intelligence world. It has to be said. I mean, a lot of intelligence work is fairly mundane, you know, gathering information, etc. And it's not about James Bond um, going to glamorous locations and firing off his uh, wealth of PPK, but they are well-practiced in the arts of deception. And some of them are exceedingly sophisticated. Others are obviously very, very crude and desperate. (laughs) Yeah, what I find the remarkable is I can't imagine myself in that kind of situation then saying... I'm solidly with you, Mr. President. Not not just because of the implausibility of the suggestion, but the iniquitous nature of the suggestion. Then to say, I'm with you, mate, whatever you decide to do. Yes, that's true. And I think, you know, one thing that does tend to be uh, ignored, was ignored by the um, Chilcot Commission, was, well, what was the reason? What was the real reason for wanting to invade Iraq? Was it oil? There is an argument for that. Was it about 
bolstering the military hegemony of the state of Israel. I think there's quite a lot of that. This is often just, you know, it's left unsaid. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, sure. And of course, there is all the the dimension of, as you say, the neocon seven countries in five years, and this whole idea of whoever dominates the Middle East controls the world. It's this corridor through, isn't it, to dominating that whole area and therefore having that power. Yes, that's true. And um, one thing we also shouldn't forget is um, still with the economic motivation is that um, Saddam Hussein had threatened to begin selling Iraqi oil in euros. And of course, um, that would severely undermine American power because um, although America is mired in this uh, debt, which hasn't been helped by these wars, in my opinion, unjustified wars that it has embarked upon uh, in the last decade and a half. But um, it is still kept afloat by virtue of the fact that the dollar is the reserve currency of, of the world, you know, with this uh, almost Faustian bargain between America and Saudi Arabia, you know, offering Saudi Arabia protection and sustenance of its regime in return for oil money being um, sold in dollars. I mean, even if uh, Americans are not involved in transactions, just the mere fact of uh, American currency being used boosts the U.S. currency. And uh, without that, America would be in even more dire straits than it is uh, today. Mm. So one notices that those who do threaten American empire by, for instance, refusing to trade uh, using dollars and finding alternatives are really earmarked for destruction. Saddam uh, bore the consequences of that. So did Colonel Gaddafi, who yes. was planning to float the dinar, uh, you know, which would be linked to gold and also the mineral reserves of uh, the different um, African nations. And of course, Syria is also divorced from the international um, financial uh, establishment. It also refused to sign a treaty with Israel. So that also does play a part in this motivation uh, to destroy Iraq. And uh, it really has um, caused um, untold damage to American and British prestige, economic and the moral consequences are are, are truly terrible. Absolutely. Agreed. So you say in your essay that there have been attempts both before and after the Iraq invasion to challenge the legality of this war. Uh, You say there have been appeals to UN Resolution 1441, of course, and the European Charter of Human Rights. But these attempts have been unsuccessful. And so you suggest that maybe the way we need to go will be to appeal to the principle of aggression as defined in the Nuremberg trials. Can you talk us through that? I mean, people are obviously familiar with Nuremberg trials, but the specific way in which you think that could be applied to the case that we've been talking about. Yes, um, uh, Nuremberg trial provided the basis for criminalizing those people who begin war of conquests, who conspire to achieve that. And so I think the particular phrase used is the planning, the preparation and initiation and the waging of a war of, of aggression. If we look at those facets 
of collusion, of conspiracy. I think we find parallels, certainly with what happened uh, with Germany. If you put aside the Nazi ideology of Hitler's Germany, the war essentially started as a result of uh, a deception uh, to do with the Polish border. The whole idea of the acquisition of territory by any means um, is effectively what we've been discussing here. Yeah, yeah. Is, is it necessary to have as part of that definition that you go to war against pre-existing agreements, against treaties or assurances that you've made to other states, people of other countries? Is, is, is that part of the definition? Um, that might be part of it, but it's. It, I wouldn't say it's exclusively the case. It, it's just simply if you conspire to conquer another country and you use... Uh, deception, uh, you, you conspire to do this uh, by any means without justification mm -hmm. and without uh, any evidence of um, self-defense or evidence that you are protecting um, uh, human life, you are effectively condemned. As they said, uh, the, the military court did say at Nuremberg, this is the supreme crime because uh, the, it is the umbrella of so much in the Middle East that is happening today and initially happened in the Iraq war. Genocide, torture, you know, all of these issues. So it's, it's like uh, the Russian Matryoshka doll. It really is the crime of all crimes and it's the crime on which a whole range of crimes are based including the evolution of what we call uh, the Islamic State today. I mean that has a direct link uh, to the destruction of uh, Iraq. Okay, so looking at what I think you might be suggesting in the article, I think you suggest an appeal to the UN Charter. Um, this may be in connection with people who you suggest there could be a case made against Tony Blair. So there are a couple of names, Lord Thomas Bingham and Professor Sir Geoffrey Bindman. Um, I'm not sure whether both of them did or have referred to the UN Charter. Um, have I got that right? Would they use that as a standard by which to judge that there was no self-defense, there was no human catastrophe, that sort of thing? Yes, I think so, uh, both in terms of um, the Nuremberg Principle, as stated, mm. and also that uh, UN Charter, this is um, Article 2, Subsection 4, uh -huh. which basically precludes the use of force that um, interferes with a nation's uh, territorial integrity and its political independence. And that clearly was the case with Iraq. There was no evidence of uh, self-defense, and I think, I, I think you briefly touched on it, um, there needed to be further Security Council uh, authorization. So that uh, resolution 1441, which was to do with Iraq uh, satisfying UN inspectors that it didn't have these weapons of mass destruction, which Hans Blick at the time, you know, the head who uh, had to withstand a lot of American pressure, felt there wasn't uh, any evidence. That was man, satisfying. Indeed. Mm. Mm. Very brave man, indeed. Very, very brave man, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. And incidentally, um, Jack Straw himself drew up his criteria at the time. So this is independent of Lord Goldsmith, the legal advisor for the Blair government, the Attorney General. Yeah. I mean, Straw did draw up um, a certain criteria that was linked to um, the fact that it needed to be clear that an armed attack from Iraq was imminent, you know, and uh, that the that use of force 
uh, had to be necessary and that there were no other means available, you know, and, and that also if self-defense was applicable, then it had to be proportionate to the threat posed. So the Chilcot report also does mention the fact that all avenues had not been exhausted. And if, for instance, there had been these purported weapons of mass destruction, remember that there was this um, no-fly zone effectively above Iraq. Saddam's Air Force could not move anywhere. They could have targeted these specific areas. If it was, I mean, that would have been illegal, I would submit, because as we found out, (laughs) they didn't exist. But certainly to destroy the whole country, um, that was a pretty radical thing to do. And and, and this is where the crime really uh, manifests itself in totality. Did you say in in reality there was no self-defense? I understand that Bush appealed to some notion of preemptive self-defense, which I think is an extraordinary kind of idea, really, because, well, you could go for anybody on that basis, I would have thought. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, a lot of international law may use things which are used in uh, municipal criminal law, say, of uh, Britain or the United States. And the idea of preemptive self-defense, what you can call anticipatory self-defense, is part of the criminal law of this country. In other words, if uh, you or I were surrounded by four thugs, I think the legal rationale is we don't have to wait for them to set upon us. We can preempt that. And so that logic can be translated into international law. But really, was Saddam about to attack anybody? Most unlikely. I see. So it obviously still needs very carefully defining and evidencing in order to make such a plea. Absolutely. Absolutely. But as you imply there, you know, it was really gumbo diplomacy with George Bush. You know, the either you're with us or you're with the terrorist uh, mentality. I mean, there there was really no basis. I mean, they were just banding about these words, self-defense, anticipatory self-defense, but um, really utterly meaningless Um, It really was an out of control and effectively an immoral, an immoral government and a government not operating by the rule of law. Mm. And you mentioned Lord Goldsmith as the attorney general at the time. That's right. Yes. And I understand that he obviously they were trying to find this legal basis for the war. And the advice generally was that there wasn't (laughs) that 1441 just did not cover it but that he had a meeting in Washington and then came back and very quickly wrote, I think, a 13-page document setting out what he believed to be a case saying, yes, it is legal based on 1441, that the cabinet was not allowed to read the whole document. They were given just a page or something or that Claire Short asked, look, can we see the whole thing? And, well, he wouldn't (laughs) give the information. And this was just a few days before the war kicked off. And if that's true, that is just amazing that everything could be left to the last minute like this well absolutely amazing and um i suppose it it shows you the desperation behind the whole endeavor but it also shows us um how we will later discuss how domestic remedies or sanctions could be imposed on tony blair based on that because here he was deceiving parliament and also deceiving his cabinet colleagues now that is public, you know, that's misconduct in public office, frankly. 
Do you think that there's a case to be heard with respect to some of these other people? So Lord Goldsmith, Richard Dearlove, uh, John Scarlett, who headed the Joint Intelligence Committee. I mean, other individuals. I mean, yes. The whole thing focuses upon Tony Blair, but it's not just him, is it? Oh, oh, absolutely. He needed, uh, I was going to say the word cabal, but he, he did need people to bring this uh, to fruition. And of course, the thing that is forgotten when we do focus on Bush and uh, Blair is, is as, as I stated, uh, Nuremberg, it's well known. The political classes and the military classes and all others were implicated and were hanged at Nuremberg. So these people should have known better. All of those people were basically accessories to a crime and um, should also bear responsibility for it. Um, I wouldn't go so far as um, what happened recently, I think just yesterday, with this uh, Labour MP who said, oh, let's uh, sweep it under the carpet, so to speak. Tony Blair did not act in bad faith. He made bad decisions, but he did not act in bad faith. I mean, that really does not stand the test, you know, given all the machinations that have come to light. I mean, it's just no question about saying it was a mistake or it was uh, something which was to do with the setup. It wasn't that, actually, because uh, you mentioned John Scarlett, uh, you mentioned Richard Dearlove, MI6. That was the organization that Tony Blair was um, possibly manipulating to bring along, whereas MI5 did offer some resistance. I think that there is evidence that uh, the head of MI5 at the time did raise objections as to the way which uh, the policy was being carried out, yes. Right. So we have this picture, don't we, of the neocons or a putting pressure on Blair and Blair then putting pressure on MI6 and MI6 thinking, well, we've got to come up with basically what the government wants to hear to some extent. Um, and I'm saying that because of what Craig Murray says when he responded to the Chilcot report, and he was saying how the normal filters that will be placed upon intelligence data were lifted. Absolutely. Um, and so you have that case of the, I can't remember who he was, some sort of general or something, some Iraqi defector who supposedly had worked with or knew about weapons of mass destruction, who Craig Murray says he, he knew was paid you know, suitcases full of money um, to say whatever. And uh, this is the kind of thing that under normal circumstances would just not have got through. But because of the pressure, it did get through. Now, people such as Richard Dearlove, who were presiding over that situation, surely must at least be investigated for not saying, well, this is unacceptable, we're not going to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, some people suspected that uh, John Scarlett, who was well rewarded afterwards with a knighthood and... Uh other things was um, fairly culpable in this. And we've mentioned Richard Dearlove's comments as well. Um, one thing that I was uh, a little surprised about was that actually the filter, there is a filter within the intelligence system. So if we sort of recap on the main intelligence agencies in Britain being MI5, the domestic service, MI6, the foreign service, then you've got general communications headquarters, the listening post, a bit like the American NSA, um, you also have the military body, but there is a filter organization known as the Joint Intelligence Committee. And if you notice, the Chilcot report did actually highlight the fact that the Joint Intelligence Committee's words were basically supplied with caveats. Uh, you know, it was saying them um, may not be reliable. 
we need more information. Patching but yet, yeah, yes. when translated into the dossier that was yes. disseminated to the public, these um, uncertainties, ambiguities, etc., were sort of made more certain. Yeah. And, and Tony Blair would actually speak in terms of knowledge. We know <laughs> that he has them. How could you say you know when, in fact, you don't know? Absolutely. <laughs> we know that he has stockpiles of major amount of chemical and biological weapons. You may have a gut feeling. I don't doubt that he had a gut feeling for whatever reason, but that's not good enough, is it? Absolutely. I mean, so that's actually a bald-faced lie then. I mean, that is actual deception and misleading of Parliament and, and, and the public. And yet he says he never lied. Sorry? <laughs> and yet he said he insists he never lied. <laughs> <laughs> so that presumably is also a lie. <laughs> well, no, perhaps he just believes he never lied, but he did. There's definitely a, a psychological dimension. I, I haven't noticed this in the British politician, um, but I think perhaps... Blair needs to get the Nixon treatment. If you notice, um, a lot of uh, reviews of Nixon's life and his presidency is about his complex frame of mind. And I think Tony Blair, yes, most certainly, he needs that scrutiny as to really what motivates him. I mean, people do use the phrase sociopath and that in some ways does explain it. It's, it's just unbelievable. How could he say that he has the actual knowledge when we now know that was not the case? And you see the drift to war. I mean, we're speaking with hindsight, but even at the time, many people were suspicious. Many people knew of the desperation. I mean, the, uh, some of the evidence for these weapons of mass destruction or the Iraq's capabilities were obtained by a thesis of some sort by a, a Iraqi student in an American university. I mean, it was um, just uh, utterly remarkable. And obviously there was that situation about Iraq looking for... Um, is it plutonium elements in Niger, the West African state of Niger? I mean, a total fabrication. Oh, the yellow cake business. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, one thing that just, just crossed my mind, and I, I wish I'd said it at the time, but I'll just add it now. I was talking about Craig Murray, talking about this defector and the suitcase full of money, etc. Mm. And that was actually one of the ideas, according to the Blair Bush memo, that Bush came up with, where he hoped that a defector would be extracted from Iraq and give a, quote, public presentation about Saddam's WMD. And I thought, well, that's a funny thing, <laughs> that that actually came true. Well, there we go. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe just a coincidence. Um, so uh, let's talk just a little about what's possible then. So some people say it would be possible to try Tony Blair and other people. and Many are saying it would not be possible because of the functions of the International Criminal Court. Do you want to talk us through what's possible and what's not possible? Yes, absolutely. So it's important to mention that um, there are people who believe Tony Blair is culpable of a moral and uh, something that does equate to an international uh, war crime. Right. Jeffrey Robertson is somebody who's argued that way uh, right from the start. He's an eminent human rights lawyer. But even he says that, you know, trying Tony Blair uh, for war crimes uh, would be a legal impossibility. That's strong, an impossibility. Yes. Oh, he has a point, and the point is, um, it's a technical one, but I think it's something, uh, although it's been reported in, in the press, it's something which uh, perhaps the public have not really picked up upon. They just feel that the establishment has dragged its feet or it's closed its ranks and it will, it will not give up Blair 
to prosecution. But uh, the truth of the matter is that crime of uh, aggressive war that was um, stated at the uh, International Military Court in uh, Nuremberg did continue to be the law, prevailing law in um, international law. But that in 1998, uh, they had the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court when they were about to establish um, this uh, International Criminal Court. And the deliberate decision was made to suspend you know, the jurisdiction of uh, this particular crime of waging a war of, of aggression. So that's after 1998. So let's follow that train. After 1998, in a sense, and obviously I'll argue against it, but in a sense, that crime of aggressive war no longer existed in a sense. Certainly as far as the international court was concerned, because they needed to agree on a new definition. And that did not occur until uh, 2010 in the Ugandan capital of Kampala, when they had a review conference of the uh, Statute of Rome. And even then, although they now have given it a a definition, and it's a definition that essentially contains the elements, fundamental elements of what was uh, declared at Nuremberg, you know, preparation, planning and initiation, they have still said that uh, they need to reach further agreement as to when offenders can be prosecuted and that won't be until next year 2017 so So, why did they do this why couldn't they have a provisional nuremberg-like definition and then say we'll improve it in 2010 and 2017 that is that is a question to ask i mean it's uh, Mm. it's almost unfathomable why they would do that i mean the best we can then say is to do is to sort of counteract that and just to say that well this law cannot just have disappeared. No, you know, no, it, you gives, know. it gives everybody a 20-year window to say, hey, look, we can just do what we like. <laughs> yes, let's, but, but what about the retrospective? we window and let's commit yeah, uh, our war crimes before <laughs> they're made illegal. Because I mean, nobody can define them, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, so why can this not be applied retrospectively? You say next year, we're going to have the definitions at the ICC, so then presumably you could say, well, he was retrospectively in contempt of this. Yes, I mean, I think um, the real issue is that Tony Blair should have been tried long ago, along Mm -hmm. with George Bush, you know. Mm. And the question is, therefore, that, well, even if the International Criminal Court had suspended this jurisdiction somewhat uh, mysteriously, why not create a special tribunal for the perpetrators of the Iraq war? After all, they'd done that for um, the genocide uh, committed in Yugoslavia and Rwanda. So there's no reason why a special tribunal dedicated to Iraq could not be set up in, in that way. Well, if that's the case, then why would it be described as impossible? Is he just referring to the International Criminal Court and not thinking any further than that? I, I think so. I, I have to think so. And, and, and that is what is a bit surprising because he, hmm. um, Jeffrey Robinson, has been a critic of um, Tony Blair. Yes, it's plausible for him to say with a strict black letter reading of the law, the non-existent law, uh, there just isn't the means by which he can be tried. But, you know, he could then go on and suggest the alternatives. So it most certainly is not impossible. And the issues to do with the retrospectively applicable laws, I mean, 
that should not come into place. I think there are many jurisprudential arguments that could be brought to bear. Um, after all, Nuremberg, and there's criticism of Nuremberg, uh, for instance, has been um, victor's justice. But um, there was no crime of, uh, specific crime of waging war and aggression. It was actually pronounced in Nuremberg and applied retrospectively. And I think um, retrospective criminalization is something that uh, much of uh, the municipal laws of most countries abhor. Um, It just isn't um, a good thing to do to make somebody criminally responsible for something that wasn't an offense. But I would say that you can't sort of apply it in this situation because, of course, the offense of uh, waging a war of aggression did exist. And in a sense, can still exist because some countries may have incorporated it into their domestic uh, jurisdictions. Right. So there's a sense of he and other people like him ought to have known. Um, I mean, you have one example here where a retrospective action might take place. You, you call it an analogy to a situation with certain marital rape cases where you know, somebody's appealing against the the verdict. And the counter to the appeal is, yeah, but you really should have anticipated the evolution of the law. Presumably, in this case, you might say, well, okay, there was this window of opportunity, but you should have anticipated where the law would go. And you need to look at the past as well and realize, well, it was illegal before 1998. Perfectly put, Julian. That's absolutely uh, the analogy that, that, that should be drawn. Um, that you can't say, well, it does, it didn't exist and uh, therefore I'm covered because technically it wasn't justiciable in the International Criminal Court between sort of, you know, um, when it was created in the early 2000s and 2017, assuming that it does uh, come into effect. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so and when it's put like that, it really does feel like a technicality if one is trying to get off the hook that way. Um, you also mentioned impeachment. Apparently there is in British law provision for impeachment. Now, is this the thing that Alex Salmond was trying to do earlier in the summer? Yes, and in fact, he's been frustrated in the last few days by merely calling for a committee to discuss the Chilcot findings. So, I mean, more evidence about the resistance of the British state to putting um, Tony Blair uh, on trial. I mean, I must say, um, so far as the international uh, law is concerned, before we look at the domestic law, we have to mention the fact that um, this law of aggression potentially could have been a part of British law but only if it had been implemented by Parliament. So it's worth um, just um, mentioning to those non-legally minded or non-legally trained uh, viewers of yours that, or listeners of yours, that states in the world can be monists, they can be dualist states. And if a state is a monist state, it means that when a country signs an international treaty, the treaty is automatically incorporated into that country's law. But uh, Britain is a dualist state. So although Britain may sign treaties, you need a specific act of parliament to activate them. Um, This is what occurred with, for instance, European law. It's just not enough to sign a treaty of accession to the European Union. You know, you must have an act of parliament that translates that. And so because some countries are monoist, like Switzerland is, presumably the crime of aggression can be tried in a Swiss court. So why don't the British authorities hand over Tony Blair and other 
potential um, you know, transgressors of the law from the security service and the armed forces to uh, Swiss jurisdiction. I see that. But under what law would you hand him over? Um, well, you'd be extraditing him to be tried for this um, crime of uh, war of aggression. The extradition would be, uh, you could base it on just the, the fact of um, Britain having a treaty with the country which allows them to extradite wanted criminals. Of course, it'd have to be done with the consent of the other country. I'm not saying there might not be problems with that, but certainly it's something to think of. And also, we mustn't forget that one thing that Tony Blair could be tried as an international criminal for is um, under the rules of the Hague and the Geneva Convention, which uh, prohibit the pillaging of another country by fundamentally transforming the economy of that occupied country. I mean, this is something Lord Goldsmith, who we mentioned earlier on, had actually advised Tony Blair about, Uh saying that those changes that were being wrought in um, Iraq were potentially unlawful under international law. So they were transforming the Iraqi economy and the Iraqi political system, you know, from a secular country changed into one in which uh, it was politically organized along ethnic lines, which arguably contributed to the sectarian strife that has occurred. They removed all subsidies, you know, including oil and uh, fuel and other things that Iraqi citizens enjoyed. They introduced a flat tax rate, you know, by which, you know, the poorest and the richest all paid the same taxes. So that was fundamentally changing Iraq and at the same time, absolutely pillaging it because I think um, it was well known that there were lots of ships loading oil, which was not accounted for. Um, there was outright theft and also these contracts that were handed to British and certainly American firms like Halliburton. Mm. Um, that was all part of, you have to say, a scam, really. It's a shame you talk about nations and uh, governments and states, but <laughs> unfortunately, how else can you describe it? Well, I mean, you mentioned Halliburton there. That certainly helps to make sense of Dick Cheney breathing down Tony Blair's <laughs> neck. Um, well, I mean, so that that would, in fact, come under the International Criminal Court, then, that example that you've just come up with there. Yes. But, but, yes. but, but that, that would be a bit anemic, wouldn't it? Because if he is guilty of war crimes, that is what you want to get him for. Yes, that's true. That's true. But I think when you do prosecute people, I think the idea behind a, a prosecution is you charge them with as many things as you can. And if one thing isn't available, you certainly charge them with another thing. So why not charge uh, a person? We're not saying he's guilty of it, but if he's tried and duly convicted, um, then while he's serving his time in jail, uh, hopefully the International Court will come round to the idea that, uh, in fact, his crime in Iraq or his alleged crime is justiciable and they would give him a trial also. So, yes, it, it, it's not a total compensation for not trying him for war crimes. And that is it for today, simply because I have run out of time to deal with it. It really is as simple as that. But I'll also say that the interview with Adiyinka Makinde is actually a very long one, um, getting on for three hours, and that's, as you know, longer than I normally produce. So I thought it wouldn't be a bad idea to split this interview into two parts anyway. And I have done that before with one or two interviews, which seem to work okay. 
And Arenka's very happy with that idea too. So I hope to post the second part of this interview later in the week, in which we go on to discuss the question of state crimes with respect to the troubles in Northern Ireland and the British state's implication in the US's obnoxious so-called extraordinary rendition program. So do stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll check in for part two. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, of themindrenewed.com, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future.